Since the founding of the movement in 1876, all who have identified with it have been drawn by its specialization in ethics and have enjoyed the perfect freedom of fellowship that Al Martin spoke of so eloquently. And in those two points sound the chords that are part of the harmony of the ethical movement. The tolling of the clarion of ethics that sounds from every platform in every society. And the fellowship that resonates within people who agree on certain cardinal points, but may differ on the philosophy of those points. The individual aspects of our agreements are flourishes and grace notes. And our differing philosophic approaches, of which we make so much, are but riffs and ruffles. But together, they form the music, the harmony of our fellowship, of our community, the harmony of the ethical movement. There. I've given away my entire platform address in the first two paragraphs. <laughs> well, not quite. In further sounding the base notes of our harmony, I will cover the run-up to ethical culture, cite the points we agreed on a century ago and that remain relevant in our movement today, touch on some of the additional things we have come to hold in common, and even take a look toward the future. So hopefully there's still something to hang around for. Good morning morning and thank you for making me welcome. In the interest of full disclosure, my address this morning is an outgrowth of the opening words that I delivered before the American Ethical Union's Board of Directors meeting preceding the annual assembly in Scranton, Pennsylvania last month. I know a number of you were there for the assembly and even more of you attended the certification ceremony of three of your own as leaders, the vacationing Amanda Poppy, Mary Herman, and Hugh Taft Morales. <laughs> it was a grand affair. And those of you who were not there missed a real treat in hearing leader Joe Schumann's charge to the newly certified and then them speaking in turn on diversity, beauty, and strength, echoing the theme of the assembly taken from Maya Angelou's words, in diversity there is beauty and there is strength. And it's the strength and beauty of diversity, I would add, that diversity is an essential component of harmony. This morning I'll be telling much of my story through the voices of others, voices from a century and more ago. And while I will rely most heavily on expressions of Al Martin, as I did in my opening words, I'll also be quoting from others who spoke to various ethical societies around the turn of the last century. And, of course, from the founder of the ethical movement, Dr. Felix Adler. In 1895, when the pragmatist William James addressed the Philadelphia Society, he began by saying, in the deepest heart 
of all of us is a corner in which the ultimate mystery of things works sadly. And I know not what an association such as yours asks of those who you invite to address you, unless it be to lead you from the surface glamour of existence and, for an hour, to make you heedless of the buzzing and the jingling and the vibration of small interests and excitements that form the tissue of our ordinary consciousness. Without further explanation or apology, he went on, I ask you to join me in turning an attention commonly too unwilling to the profounder base notes of life. Now, I won't take an hour, I promise, but I will hopefully sound the deeper base notes of the ethical humanist life. That said, it seems appropriate to begin with something from the founder of our movement, Felix Adler. Most of you are familiar with the story of the founding of our movement, and more than a few of you have read his moving founding address. But the backstory, the run-up, is just as interesting and perhaps more informative to our discussion this morning. In October of 1873, the better part of three years before he found the ethical movement, Felix Adler addressed his father's congregation at Temple Emmanuel in New York City. His address was appropriately entitled, The Judaism of the Future. At the time of the address, Felix was but 22 years of age. he just completed his studies in Germany, returning with a doctorate in philosophy, and was considered heir apparent to his father as head rabbi. He was young and perhaps a bit too brash in his outspoken opposition to what he called the decadent theology of the religions of the time. In his address, he said, On all sides, we hear the end of religion predicted. And no wonder, considering the sorry condition in which it finds itself. The best spirits of the age are turning their backs on religion. Now, in so saying, he confidently dispatched the religionists of his day with the back of his hand, including the religion of his audience. Perhaps that wasn't the wisest of things to have done. <laughs> But in fairness, he came not to tear down that which was already in shambles. His intent was to build up something new. And so he urged his father's congregation toward a new religious expression. The bark of religion is swimming in shallow waters, he warned, and it will be stranded if ye beware not. Away then with false hesitation. But hesitate they did. And in that, his one and only address at Temple Emmanuel, Felix Adler went from heir apparent to heir unapparent. The religion he described that day lay too far in the future for the congregants of Temple Emmanuel. 
They cringed when he spoke of proclaiming a declaration of independence. Independence from superstition and ignorance. And they did not share his vision. They could not grasp the harmony of a new union founded on the true wants of our nature, our highest attributes, our noblest aspirations. A union of religion with life. It was a bold new direction the young Dr. Adler proposed. A radical, fresh approach to religion. One without a creed that followers had to swear allegiance. But rather one with an open canon of principles and ideals that form the crucible within which the ethical movement exists and functions. This open canon, this new union, established a firm foundation upon which rests a cathedral with walls not made of stone, but permeable walls. Walls that allow new ideas to seep in and outworn concepts to quietly creep out unmourned. All the while maintaining harmony within. And no wonder, as that's just what Adler set out to do. There lives in us, he said, an inextinguishable desire to bind together in unity our manifold experiences, to harmonize the world which we carry within us with the external world, the order of nature with the moral order. Three years later, Adler founded a religion based not on laws and authorities, but on a reasoned belief in and a duty toward each other. It's worth pointing out that a host of natural, rational, science and human-based religions sprung up in America in the late 19th century. Ours is the only one that that has survived into the 21st century. Bear that in mind as I go along this morning because my address is not directed toward the issues of why we're the sole survivor. That's a question for another time. But I do hope I will shed some light on the question. It's also worth noting that ethical culture set out in a direction toward the ethical ideal of perfected living And it has stayed the course, due in no small part to the genius of its harmonious composition. S. Burns Weston, the founding leader of the Philadelphia Society, opened his 1897 platform on our faith and our duty with these stimulating words. No movement was ever worth anything or had any permanent influence in the world that was not inspired by great conviction. The great and successful leaders of all times have been those who believed earnestly in some one direction and who inspired in others a similar belief and earnestness. Now, when speaking of a unity of direction and a consistent and unified message that attracts and inspires others, 
Weston was speaking of the need for harmony. Now, I know that trying to find some one direction for ethical humanists is like trying to nail jello to the wall. And I also know that trying to corral ethical culturists into similarity of belief is like herding cats. But still, we try. And sometimes, sometimes, we succeed. It was just such a quest that Al Martin embarked upon in his platform address entitled, Cardinal Points Upon Which Ethical Societies Are Agreed. A few months ago, he began in 1910, I compared the bonds of union or bases of fellowship of all of the ethical societies in the United States. My objective was to discover, if possible, the common element in these statements or the points upon which all ethical societies are agreed. While this effort was directed at agreement, Martin couldn't resist pointing out the obvious, that many and varied are the points of difference among the representatives of the ethical movement. Talk about a classic understatement. Still, he managed to find seven significant points of substantial agreement. Now, I won't spend time on each or even cite each individually, save for the first and the last. Rather, I've strung them together in a narrative, interspersing comments from others and from a like address that Martin gave three years later on the distinctive characteristics of the ethical movement. This was a recurring theme with him and with us. First and fundamental, he began, we are agreed that there is a constant need of deepening and elevating moral life, of approximating an ideal of holiness, of living upward, to use the terse expression of the late lamented Dr. Francis E. Abbott of Cambridge. Now, Abbott was one of the founders of the Free Religious Association, of which Ralph Waldo Emerson was an ardent supporter. I mention this because Adler was greatly, himself was greatly influenced by Emerson. And <clears throat> in his own words, he felt he was drawn toward him by a strong attraction with temporary disregard for radical differences. So drawn was Adler to Emerson that he named his firstborn son Waldo. But not so drawn that he hesitated to part company with Emerson on ideas of transcendentalism, where Adler took a much milder stance. Martin goes on to quote Abbott directly on the constant need of living upward. Upward toward truth of thought, which is knowledge. Upward toward truth of feeling, which in its highest form is love. Upward toward truth of conduct, which is virtue the fulfillment of duty. And then, in his own non-gender-sensitive language, Martin proclaimed, he and only he is the true religious man 
who inwardly dedicates himself and outwardly devotes himself to all truth that he can learn in order to do right and to be good. Note that he did not urge us to do good, but to do right and to be good. And he urged us to dedicate ourselves to lifelong learning, to live upward toward truth. He also echoed the Adlerian principle of harmonizing the inner world of thought with the external world of conduct in the fulfillment of duty. In that effort, Martin goes on to urge us toward an approximation to an ideal. As that is what gives value to life, it is what makes life worth living. He points us in the direction of an upwardly lived life of duty that in and of itself gives meaning to life. He posited that truth, love, and duty are the supreme things to live for. Truth, love, and duty. Ours is indeed a religion of duty, of responsibility for ourselves and responsibility toward each other. John Steinbeck, in my favorite of all his writings, Sweet Thursday, a sequel to Cannery Row, wrote, man owes something to man. If he ignores the debt, it poisons him. And if he tries to make payment, the debt only increases. And the quality of the gift is the measure of the man. The quality of our gift is our measure. Though obligation exists, we don't practice right living in payment of debt. And while we strive toward upward living, we do so in the understanding that good is not something we do, it is something we struggle to become. Having laid out truth, love, and duty as the supreme things to live for, Martin focuses on duty as example to a profound point. Great is the stress put upon moral obligation regardless of theories as to its origin. Duty, we say, binds us, though we differ as to the philosophy of duty. This, I think, is particularly germane today and is, in part, answer to why the ethical movement remains relevant and vibrant despite radical changes within and without. That we agree on these and other cardinal points while enjoying freedom as to their origin is the basis of a plurality of philosophic views, yet a singularity of philosophic practicalities and ethical practices. Or, phrased differently, deed above creed. Martin amplified this in saying, we need more light. It simply is not true that we always know what is right. Here he strengthens the importance of the pursuit of truth as a guide to right living and goes on to stress 
that the means by which we conduct that search are of overriding importance. <clears throat> One of the best ways of finding truth in matters of conduct is by trying, by experiment. Experience is, he said, the supreme teacher. Not any of the other means that result in knowledge claims. Not revelation, not intuition, not supposition, not superstition. But experience. Experience. The life we lead with each other. One to one, group to group. Experience. He brings his exploration to conclusion in his last point of agreement among ethical societies of a century ago and of today. No theological <clears throat> or philosophical belief shall stand in the way of anyone becoming a member of an ethical society. That's a powerful distinction that separates us from the vast majorities of religions. Most place the burden of inclusion on likeness of thought and belief rather than in right relations, in right or upward living, in doing right and striving to be good. In speaking of why he took up this search for our common elements, Martin said, my motive is simply one of clarification and justification. Of clarification, because I find, as others of us have found, a surprising vagueness and error in the popular thought concerning the movement. Of justification, because I am so frequently confronted with the statement that the ethical movement is superfluous, inasmuch as its work is now being done by liberal churches and synagogues. And, I would add, much of the work has been incorporated into our culture and taken up by various social agencies, private and public. I think of the progressiveness of Teddy Roosevelt that trumpeted democracy and modernity, of the NAACP and the ACLU and a long list of others, and of FDR's New Deal that began in response to the financial crisis of the Great Depression and ended with the social reforms of the 1960s. We have repeatedly played a significant role in impacting our surrounding culture. We have been leaders in social reform, and we have stimulated others to take up our causes and carry them forward with great effectiveness. But that doesn't render us superfluous. Using example for the concerns of his time, Martin went on to address this queasiness by reminding us that the true purpose of the ethical movement, and here I quote, is not to do the work of charity organizations, but to sustain and develop in the workers the spirit behind all true charity work. Not to stop child labor, but to inspire and quicken the sentiment that shall control those devoted to the abolition of child labor. Such is the character of the ethical movement, he said. Yet still we hear this same lament of superfluousness today. Part of that concern is endemic to 
being on the forward thrust of religious expression or on the cutting edge of our culture as I hold the ethical movement to be. Part of its perception, part of its identification. As early as 1913, Martin observed that, I, <clears throat> that the identification, ethical culture, is now grown somewhat archaic and certain to be superseded by a more comprehensive and more fully descriptive substitute. <laughs> Clearly, Al Martin's enterprise of clarification, justification, and identification is one that needs to be revisited from time to time. And to this reasoning, <clears throat> and to his reasoning, I add that in the intervening century, our philosophic ground shifted from Adler's mild transcendentalism, his concept of supersensibility, it shifted to the philosophic naturalism that we embrace today. So add this to the mix, and you add a certain sense of urgency to the enterprise. So, a few years ago, the National Leaders Council once again took up the challenge of detailing the elements of the ethical movement and in 2008 issued an account not of what we must believe as ethical culturists or ethical humanists, but like similar efforts before, a consensus statement of what we are, on, what we are in agreement on. The statement can be found on the American Ethical Union's website, aeu.org. Just go to the upper right-hand corner. You'll see it right there. Click on it, and you can study it if you like. AEU.org. End of announcement. In a footnote to the preamble of the 2008 leader statement on ethical culture slash ethical humanism, we said, just as Al Martin predicted, that today the historic identification, ethical culture, and the modern description, ethical humanism, are used interchangeably. We began the statement then by stressing the twin aims that Adler set before us in saying, we are dedicated to cultivating moral development in personal life and moral reform in society. We go on to restate in the language of our day all the things that Al Martin laid out in the, in the language of his day. In the opening words of one of the few of his few books, The Religion of Duty, Adler put forth the concept that there is something in religion besides its doctrines, its symbols, and its ceremonies. There is something underlying which we cannot afford to and do not want to lose. Something without which our lives would be poor and miserable indeed. That which is everlastingly precious in religion, he said, is the conviction that life is worthwhile. And so, in focusing on our dedication to moral reform of society, of the creation of an ethical culture, the leaders in 2008 put forth the bold 21st aim of transforming the way humanity views the meaning of life. 
Our aim is to further the transition from what Al Martin said were, for the most part, religions encrusted with formalism and dogmatism. Those in which rhetoric replaces knowledge and fantasy substitutes for fact. Those that reduce life to a test to be endured. To transform that view to one that celebrates the wonderful things that lie within human capabilities, that opens life to the inspirational possibilities that reside within each and every one of us, to the view that embraces and animates the conviction that life is worthwhile. We emphasized our love of life and attributed meaning to how by accepting this life as all and enough, how we're able to openly embrace life in all its particularity and diversity. We stress how we nurture the beauty of reciprocal relationships in which we act so as to elicit the best in others and thereby in ourselves. And we highlighted how we find strength in the adversities we face and the potentialities we represent. In diversity, there is beauty and there is strength. And in our agreements on these and other points, there is harmony. Adler's Declaration of Independence caused a sea change, a veritable tsunami within religion. He and the founding and following generations of our movement affected a cultural mind change that's hard to overstate. In turning our attention to the future, their boldness of thought and action give us creativity and courage to take up the cause we set upon today, the transformation of the way humanity views the meaning of life. This next step, this next and necessary and logical step can take place only within the crucible of democracy. And as the leader stated two years ago, we hold that democracy is not just a political system, but also a personal commitment, a continual exercise in freedom of conscience, thought, and moral responsibility expressed through humane deeds. As these various attempts to delineate the points upon which we are in agreement indicate, points that far outweigh the de minimis differences we tend to inflate in conflict. As these points indicate, there is harmony within the ethical movement. Chords and accords that the world hungers for. It is our responsibility to share them openly, to share them bravely, to share them creatively, and to share them harmoniously. If my address this morning is anything, it's a call to share the beauty and harmony of a life dedicated to the ever-increasing knowledge and practice and love of the right. Of a life that follows the path that Adler charted for us, one that aspires to the ideal of perfected living, the one direction that Burns Weston urged us toward, a direction we believe in earnestly, a life that willingly takes up the challenge of transforming our culture, 
a life lived upwardly that inspires in others a similar belief and earnestness. The 2008 leader statement was signed by 36 leaders. It and I end with this. In placing deed before creed, our welcome becomes broader and more inclusive than the boundaries of our beliefs. Standing as a beacon of hope to all, we extend the hand of welcome to those who share these aims and are eager to work toward them within the ethical humanist context. Within the breadth of our welcome and the depth of our agreements, within the boundaries of our beliefs and the expanse of our aims, within the diversity, within the beauty, within the strength of our voice, can be heard the harmony of the ethical movement. Thank you.